This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Did you see the coronation recently and notice the joy and friendliness in the crowd? bread and circuses someone was muttering and then the french news featured madame macron and british demonstrators shouting you are not my king but just weeks before i enjoyed the pageantry and the same joy and friendliness on the streets as extinction rebellion held an event called the big one there were four days of colorful crowds lots of music and children and 200 groups like Engineers for Climate Action, Extinction Rebellion Doctors and Nurses, and the Climate Media Coalition. 200 groups, all with stalls and places where you could go and chat with them, and interviewers going around and recording this on live stream TV. I watched hours of it, streaming from London, and uh, you probably won't do that, but I thought you would enjoy a couple of samples of the integrity and interest and liveliness of the people on the street. Some examples were Casper from the Media Climate Alliance, and then a retired policeman who was all for citizens' assemblies, and judging by how well-informed and ardent thousands of people that were, uh, you know, I could imagine there'd be they would bring great depth and breadth to any sort of citizens' assembly and therefore to our democracy. And lastly, Rob Collander, an Extinction Rebellion organiser, who said... So when we're here saying, OK, we're going we're gonna to try this new tactic, we're going to wait for it, we're going to really work, um, work to make this, uh, this accessible, you know, we've, we've done that, but we can't wait any longer. It's been four years since the climate emergency was declared, and what's happened? You know, absolutely nothing, you know, and that, that's, that's a real, that's really shocking. And, and so we've got to... We've... This will be followed by the third episode of Fear and Wonder, which follows IPCC author Joel Gerges and top journalist Michael Green to a heatwave in Toulouse. And then we come to Professor David Caroli in Melbourne on how they make the climate models, and then to Tanisha Stevenson in Jamaica, on how climate models are refined to predict 
local weather. It's a fascinating insight and I couldn't interview people as well as they do. So I'm hoping you enjoy this series and let us know what you think of it. So we'll start with Extinction Rebellion in London. Casper, Climate Media Coalition, tell us about that. So the Climate Media Coalition is um, basically what we are trying to do is ensure that the media and the specific parts of the media are right at the top of the narrative with regard to the change that we need to see in order to stop the worst case scenarios playing out. And um, whilst the, the media is, a, is a, a pillar that we don't really have and really targeted in the same way that we've targeted fossil fuel companies and governments and, and the public. And, you know, actually the, the media is, is the organisations um, or the pillar, you could say, that has the most influence on public discourse. Uh, and, and consequently, you know, we've seen how they can influence uh, policy of sitting governments. And we know that, for example, since uh, Ruth Murdoch persuaded Margaret Thatcher to deregulate the press in 1981, every single uh, party he has supported since has ended up in power. It's depressing, isn't it? It's a very big overreach of power and a big part of Extinction Rebellion is about tell the truth. How do we get the media to tell the truth? We haven't got a free press in this country. What we've got is a press that's been captured by billionaire oligarchs. You know, and amongst those billionaire oligarchs, it's Rupert Murdoch and Lord Rothermere, uh, Jonathan Harmsworth is his real name. Uh, Lord Rothermere owns the Daily Mail, which is at the moment the most powerful newspaper in the country. It was the Daily Mail that sacked Boris Johnson. There was a very rare intervention, editorial intervention from Lord Rothermere on Sunday in July, uh, where he said, I want the tomorrow's headline to reflect that the public don't support Boris Johnson. Then there was the pinch pinch headline on the Monday by Wednesday, Boris Johnson had gone. They turned everything on him and he'd gone. That's how powerful they are. Yeah, I can really respect how powerful the media are. And if they just started to tell people the truth and then engaged themselves in asking so anyone that's involved in the media if you're watching this please i think we need to move this story along now as to what are we going to do about it selling the solutions so that people want them why are the media not telling the truth with the media not telling the truth they make their money through selling advertising most of the people who advertise have some sort of fossil fuel link they're making their money through the current system business as usual and their own business like the owner's own business interests are in fossil fuels and continuing this polluting that's, that, that's, method i don't i don't think that's the reason no 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 not at all we're talking about power and this is direct power that he's got over governments here you know they, the, the way that they got the policy of our government to increase extracting fossil fuels when Russia invaded Ukraine was exactly the opposite of what we need. Yet the press pushed the, pushed, pushed the government until we saw fracking come back, for example. That's, that's about power. That's not about his shares in, in fossil fuel companies. Well, it's about those that are going to earn some money out of fracking, just putting pressure on their mates. Hey, give me some good paper space, isn't it? Like they're all mates together trying to make money. But is there a media that we can trust out there? Like, who can we listen to? Where should we get our information from? Even if you look at the likes of The Guardian, which arguably are one of the better papers uh, about reporting about the climate and ecological crisis, you turn that page over where you've just seen the Code Red report, you're faced with two pages of adverts for buying sausages, flying abroad, shopping, cruises, buying cars. Yeah. You know, they're just promoting high carbon lifestyles. Through their, they're monetized to promote high carbon lifestyles. Which yeah. we have to give away. 
along with our government, the media are utterly failing. When news that life on Earth is set to be unlivable, when that IPCC report came out and it was either not reported upon at all or buried deep and only like an inch of reporting deep in the, in the newspaper. And this most recent synthesis report that's come out and it was like on page 19, it's been proved in the past that um, journalists that helped to promote, provoke the, the genocide were tried and actually imprisoned. So I just think people need to be really cautious at this point in time as to, to whether they're part of the problem, the pollution or the solution and find your purpose. We need to find our positive role in the transition for two reasons. We all need to play our part in making the changes happen. And the second one is just to help our mental health and to help us to stay positive and to stop the paralysis from fear of the collective failure. So Thank have you, you just basically said to me, uh, do we want to see the media billionaire oligarch newspaper owners in prison going through The Hague? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely we do, because they're, they're morally on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Hello, I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland and I love radio. I can do the washing up, I could be in the garden, I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR, Radical Radio, subscription radio, community radio, on 8, 5, 5 a.m. We do stream at 3cr.org.au. So you can become a member and donate money. Back in front of the Houses of Parliament and I'm here with Rob who, and you helped to put this together. You must feel so proud of yourself for what you've, what's been able to happen this weekend. You know, I think this is like really presenting a moment now. You go, well, we've said we're not going to disrupt the public um, because we've heard that that's been a barrier for people to join. We've done that now. We've made good on that. We tell the truth. And we're also saying we want a reaction from the government by 5 p.m. That's also us telling the truth. And otherwise, basically, the media, if there's not the media silence on it, you know, they're not they're not holding the government to account. They're more interested in whether we're going to disrupt the marathon, which we didn't. You know, they're more interested in that than actually holding the politicians to account. So I think we, um, you know, we've got an interesting moment here on the last day because I think a lot of people are feeling like, well, what next? And we've built up to this moment. We've got a big march coming in now, which is uh, which is great. And coming up to the main stage, it's going to be an assembly, and that assembly is going to be about exactly what next. So when we're here saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try this new tactic, we're gonna wait for it, we're gonna really work um, work to make this uh, this accessible. You know, we've we've done that, but we can't wait any longer. It's been four years since the climate emergency was declared, and what's happened? You know, absolutely nothing. You know, and th that's. That's a real. That's really shocking, and and so we've got to we've got to do something now. If people watching this uh, feel that they are so enthused and excited about joining the movement and they sign up, what do you think they might expect in the weeks ahead? Uh, uh, Morgan and Marcus, who've just been sentenced to three years and two years and seven months respectively. Um, to, uh, we're going to be going out on their march, which is at 12, and again starting here. And then on the 30th, we should all be at our hospitals with the RCN strike. The Royal College of Nurses are going to be on strike. So, you know, that just shows that this is an interconnected struggle. You know, everyone, there's this, and, and that it's a political issue, that, that there's chronic mismanagement and cronyism and scandal at the heart of it. Yeah, well, there's so much to look forward to. Go up there thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. All the best. And uh, that was an excellent interview. What, what, a, what a great guy. Citizens' assemblies, potentially the tool to get us out of this. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody says, oh, you're just criticizing everybody and you don't have a solution. We've had a solution ever since we started. 
which is citizens' assemblies. You know, it takes it, it's a random selection of people, but it's it's not totally random. It's uh, it makes sure that it's completely representative of society. So the right portion of disabled people, black and ethnic people, um, LGBTQ plus people, they're all represented to make decisions, even different types of education, different ages is really important. Um, so sufficient young people are in there because they're going to have to live with this. So the, the group is established, probably 100, 120 people, and then they have to, um, they are given the right information and they're all given the same information. And that's what's really important over maybe three, four weekends. And then they debate it and then they make a decision. One of the most important things about citizens' assemblies is that when you compare it to what we have now, when we have a referendum, and I don't want to mention the B word, but when you have a referendum, people are informed by the newspapers they read and they are extremely divisive. Even on, on both sides, they very rarely tell the truth. So people don't, they get very different information and they're trying to make a decision on very diverse information. Whereas in this case, everybody gets the same information, but it's a, it covers all of the arguments for and against and then they make a decision. So it's a much more intelligent, fairer system, and it allows work, normal working people to make decisions, be involved. You cannot think to yourself that I pay my, ta my taxes, I, I vote for my MP, they're going to do the job for me. They're not doing the job for us. They're failing. They're failing dismally. They're failing in, in such an embarrassing way at the moment, and, um, and we have to help. We have to step up and make those decisions. And that's what this is all about here in central London for the big one. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report via the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. All right, Joel, we're starting this episode in late June 2019. Europe is bracing itself as parts of the continent are expected to see temperatures soaring above 40 degrees Celsius this week. I'm Freddie Otto. I'm a senior lecturer at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. And I'm a physicist by training and work on answering the question whether and to what extent human-induced climate change alters the likelihood and intensity of extreme weather events. 38 degrees in Toulouse, 40, and in northern Spain... We had a conference organised by the French Meteorological Service, who are based in Toulouse. So the conference was at their headquarters in Toulouse, and it was a conference about, about extreme weather events, about attribution, about the link between extreme weather events and climate change. So it's the Monday morning and the conference is going to run all week. It will get hotter. I'm talking about record-breaking temperatures, unless they're scorching. As soon as we arrived, everyone was saying, oh, have you seen the forecast? And there will be this massive heat wave. And many parts of France are expected to reach the 45 degrees Celsius mark by the end of the week. So the French weather forecast... And so it was the first heat wave of the northern hemispheric summer. It was a very early heat wave. So while heat waves sort of in August and so on in Toulouse are not uncommon, 
It was actually really early still in the summer for temperatures that high. We started to get questions from journalists. What's the role of climate change in this heat wave? What can you say? And so that was when we decided, okay, well, we're here together anyway, which makes it a lot easier than usually because we can just talk to each other all the time and, and do the study. You're listening to Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. I'm Dr. Joel Gerges, and I'm a climate scientist at the Australian National University. I'm also a lead author on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and a friend of Joel's. And in this podcast, we're exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. And Joel, the reason we're making this show is that I happen to visit you the day after my in-laws place burned down in Australia's black summer bushfires. And that encounter made me realise that I actually don't talk to you about the nitty-gritty of climate science. And more than that, I really actually have no idea about the science, about how we know what we know. And so I decided to try to find out and also to see what it's like for you all to carry this knowledge. Well, I think now is the time to be having this kind of conversation. It's a critical decade for action on climate change, so the stakes have never been higher. And the advances in the science behind it have been enormous. In this episode, we're unravelling one of the major shifts in the public communication of climate change, and it's something that's really only happened in the past few years. I guess in the past, when an extreme event would play out, so something like a heat wave or a severe storm or a major flood, people wouldn't really make the connection between climate change and that particular event. So people would say, well, weather isn't climate, and so you can't say that that is an extreme event that's caused by climate change. Well, this whole field of science has come about by scientists wanting to answer that question, well, how connected or influenced are these weather extremes by a shifting climate? So today I'm setting out to understand what is a climate model and how are scientists using modelling to connect extreme weather events and our warming planet? And that's a journey that's going to take us from Toulouse in France, back to Melbourne in Australia, and then to Kingston, Jamaica. And so, Joelle, because this is an episode about climate modelling, it's also an episode about equations. 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 Equations, equations, equations. equations. Yes, it's great. It's true. Okay, so back in France in June 2019, the heat wave was building up. There was one afternoon where there was scheduled a poster session that was supposed to be outside. And it was so hot that it would have been really dangerous. And so they organized a sort of a makeshift tent so that there was at least some shade but it was still extremely hot. And so you actually couldn't really spend any time looking at the posters, which was a shame because of course people had put quite a lot of effort in. So the study that they're about to start is basically how scientists determine how extreme events like heat waves are connected to climate change. And, and Freddie is one of the leading scientists who does this type of work, which is called detection and attribution. And it's a little bit like the field of forensics. So instead of analysing human fingerprints, scientists are examining these statistical fingerprints of 
these well-described climate influences that that match our database of known suspects. So detection is then, it's like you're looking at, I don't know, the numbers on the chart and something's like spiking up. And yeah, something's spiking up. There's it's something just, different. It's, there is something different. So basically the, the term detection is really looking at the statistical departure, if you like, from normal or average conditions. Whereas the, the process of attribution is actually trying to figure out, well, what actually caused that change? And so climate models are run with and without greenhouse gases. And then you can start to get a sense of, well, if those two graphs line up, then you know that there's an influence by, say, greenhouse gases. But if they don't, then you know other factors are at play. So it might just be, you know, natural variations in ocean circulation or something like that that's actually caused this extreme that you observe in the climate record. Attribution studies are bringing together what we observe and experience right now with the understanding and and sort of the causes from our climate science research. When you decide to do a study like this, what do you do? So the first and often most difficult part of an attribution study is to identify what is the event definition. So what is actually the best way to characterize this extreme event? And in the case of this heat wave, well, because we were in Toulouse, for us, it felt like kind of Toulouse is sort of a hot spot of this heat wave. But of course, the whole of France was also very hot. So the first question is, what is sort of the geographical extent of the event we are looking at? And then the other aspect of the event definition is the temporal element. So usually what makes the headlines in the heat wave is the maximum daily temperatures, because that's what breaks the record. But actually what affects people in the in a heat wave is usually the combination of high maximum and minimum temperatures so especially when nights are warm as well we used part of the conference actually to talk about this so when my colleague Jan was giving his talk he had looked at the forecast data and included that in in his talk and basically asked everyone in the room do you think this is a useful event definition so we actually used everyone who was there at the conference who are of course the leading thinkers in this field so it, it makes a lot of sense to get their feedback and so that was then the decision we made that we look at three-day average temperatures over France as well as over the city of Toulouse. Okay, so you've defined the event and then what happens? The next step in, in an attribution study is we look at observed data, so which in this case was very easy to get hold of because we were right at the French Met service. And, and then, well, the main idea behind an attribution study is that we look at what is possible weather in the world we live in today with 1.2 degrees of global warming, with the greenhouse gas amount that we have in the atmosphere now, and compare that to possible weather in the world that might have been without human-induced climate change. So what does she mean by possible weather? Well, there's sort of two things that Freddie's talking about here. And the first is really just the range of natural weather variability that is recorded in our instrumental, say, temperature or rainfall records. But then she's also talking about the range of simulations that the climate models produce and then looking at the past and looking at the present to determine whether the observed event, so this particular heat wave in 2019 in Toulouse, is just within the range of natural variability for that given region. But then you can start to really assess whether it's starting to move outside of what we might expect from what we've seen in the past. And so that's really important to understand whether something is is rare or particularly extreme or just part of natural climate variability. We identify what kind of event 
this is. So is it a one in a hundred year event? Is it a one in 10 year event? In the observations, this event would have been several hundred times less likely. So it would have been a really, really, really rare event in a 1.2 degree cooler world. Or in other words, the event would have been four degrees cooler without human-induced climate change. But this, of course, is based on observations. And in the observations, there are other things that change and not just human-induced climate change. So there are land-use changes that go into it. So by just looking at these observations, you don't know if all of these changes are because of climate change. So is that like the urban heat island effect? Exactly right. So urban areas store more heat in these hard, concreted surfaces so they can amplify local warming. Okay, so so then when you're looking just at the observations, you have to take into account these kinds of land use changes. Yes, understanding those land surface changes, so things like the presence or not of vegetation or water bodies, all that sort of thing, and how they influence the overlying atmosphere, which then leads to contributing to changes in atmospheric circulation. And and it's actually been found that changes in land use are really important in things like heat waves, particularly during drought conditions. There are these observational studies where people go out to field sites and have these plots where they They're measuring things like soil moisture to then try and incorporate that into a climate model. And so the next step is then to look at climate models. We used a a range of climate models that the people who were there sort of had had access to. So including the CMIP-5 models, the large ensemble from from the UK Metaphys, project simulation. Joelle, I think I need to fade Freddie down and press pause there for a moment to step back and figure out what a climate model actually is. It's a good idea. To get a little help, I visited the University of Melbourne where you used to work. My name is David Caroli. I'm an honorary professor here at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne Climate Futures Institute. So among your many achievements, you were Joelle's old boss. Yes, I met Joel. In fact, Joel was introduced to me uh, by... So uh, I found out from from interviewing David that he's super enthusiastic and also very detail-oriented. He is indeed, and he is um, really one of the great climate scientists of our time, and he's literally mentored dozens and dozens of masters and PhD students, not only here in Australia, but in other parts of the world as well. And, you know, if you have a problem and you go to David, he will certainly have something to say about it, and usually a lot of really good and um, very technical advice about what to do. Uh, I was initially, way back in the 1980s, trying to disprove that human-caused increases in greenhouse gases might be having any observed impact on large-scale global temperature changes or even southern hemisphere temperature changes. My first papers on this fingerprint analysis were in 1987, looking at patterns of temperature change between the lower atmosphere and the stratosphere in the Southern Hemisphere. Despite being initially sceptical, the more I looked, already the fingerprint of human-caused climate change due to increasing greenhouse gases was clear in the observed temperatures in the 1980s. After that time, since that time, it has become clearer and clearer and clearer. My first IPCC meeting was in 1988. That would have been the first IPCC meeting, wouldn't it? That was about the first IPCC meeting, but it was actually a meeting to discuss models and modelling as inputs to the first IPCC assessment report. Well, this is a great way for me because what I'm really here to ask you about is 
what the heck a climate model is. So a climate model is really just a mathematical representation, a whole series of equations that represent the winds and the temperature and the moisture that break up the surface of the Earth into a series of what are called grid boxes, typically 100 kilometres by 100 kilometres across, across the whole surface of the Earth and layers in the vertical as well. That's nearly two million boxes altogether. In each of those boxes, they represent temperature, moisture, the wind speed in each of the directions. It's like a checkerboard or something where you've got these little boxes and they have different characteristics and the model's trying to simulate the local climate in that particular box. And then what they do is have these mathematical equations that transfer the variables from one location to the next adjacent grid box. And they ends up with heat transfer and moisture transfer horizontally and vertically. Those are simulated with predictive equations from one time step to the next. And we have to do that effectively every 10 minutes, not just for one day, but for 100 years. And so this is basically like the movement of the weather mm. between these boxes. Exactly right. Yeah, they're just how it propagates across, say, the Pacific Ocean. But the Pacific Ocean is made up of lots and lots and lots of little boxes. We need massive computers because it ends up that we need to solve effectively about 10 different simultaneous partial differential equations in each of these grid boxes for a number of different independent variables. Temperature and pressure and wind speeds in multiple directions and humidity and carbon dioxide concentrations. Lots of different equations to solve. There must be a, a heck of a lot of code in these, in these models. Like, what, what, what do they look like? Uh, Well, what the code looks like is lines and lines, typically close to a million lines for components of each of the different models. I did my graduate study in the late 1970s. And at that stage, there was one supercomputer that we had access to. And we used to punch up the code and the corrections to the code on punch cards and they'd be sent off and you'd make a mistake and then you'd have to send up send off revisions it was a very different world when david was using those punch cards there's far fewer lines of code there yeah that's right there would have been far fewer lines of code and obviously having computing power has has really opened up a whole range of developments in the field of climate modeling 30 years ago, the initial climate models just represented the atmosphere of the whole globe. And it was only as computer power got bigger that they could be run with coupling between the ocean and the atmosphere, coupling with the land surface, coupling with vegetation. They typically had very crude representations of clouds and now they simulate clouds over individual grid boxes and how that varies. So when we run a climate model, It's much the same way as a weather weather model. We run them into the future with initial conditions and they are chaotic simulations. So the runs are like, it's just a set of different starting points and then you run it out and it comes up with all these different chaotic variations and then you get the average of that to try to figure out what what the, the changes are. That's exactly right. Each of these runs is almost like a a realisation of a parallel world where we start from different initial conditions. There will be different variations, but when you combine together 
the different independent realisations, parallel worlds. They're all different year by year and day by day, but longer term, they show they show excellent agreement with the observed changes, not only large scale across the world, but in each of the different continents and land masses aligned. There are uncertainties in how the climate will vary, but when you get good agreement between the different independently developed climate models, then we have high confidence in the projections. And that is exactly what we find when we look at the observed climate variations and shows a good agreement with the average or the best estimate from all the different climate models that are run across the world. Right. So there are, there's not just one global climate model. No, there's many research groups around the world running hundreds of climate models. And when they collate them all into one place, you have an ensemble, which is just a collection of all these climate model simulations. And then they can be used for these sort of rapid attribution studies that Freddie was talking about earlier. I, I feel like I've got some kind of grip now on what a climate model is. So I think we should go back to Freddie. We spend a lot of time standing in the shade outside the conference centre and discussing the study, mainly in the breaks. And okay, when there were boring talks, then we would just continue to, to work during the conference on our results. So when we last heard from Freddie, she was reeling off the list of different climate models that they, they had access to and that they were using for their project. So basically, these scientists were using a suite of the state-of-the-art climate models to try and figure out how unusual this extreme heat wave was in Toulouse. And what's interesting is that these guys were doing an extreme event attribution study in real time, so as it was unfolding. And I think that's pretty impressive. We then do the same thing that we did in the observations with the models, look at possible weather in the world we live in today and possible weather in the world that might have been. So to recap from earlier, this means comparing models with and without greenhouse gases. And in this case, we found that also in the models, the event was much more likely in the world we live in today and also hotter. Okay, so the conference finished, the heat wave finally broke and Freddie and her colleagues finished writing up their results over the weekend. So we had the Monday where we had the press briefing and then on the Tuesday, Actually, the embargo lifted and the study was published. The headline finding was that this event has been made at least 10 times more likely. So to spell that out fully, the heatwave in Toulouse and France was at least 10 times more likely because of human-caused climate change. But this is really a very conservative estimate. And the at least is really important because it's not 10 times more likely. It's more than 10 times more likely. So Freddie and her colleagues were being conservative because of something unusual that they'd found when they did the second part of the study, looking at what the models showed about heat waves with and without greenhouse gases. Yeah, so basically the model was about two degrees cooler than what they saw in the observations, which, which is basically saying that the model isn't able to fully capture the extreme elements of temperature variability in that region. And that was really the first time that we became aware that all the climate models that we have, even though they simulate sort of the last 30 years quite well, they don't have the same trends as the observations. And we don't really know why. And that's specifically in relation to heat waves. That's in, specifically in relation to heat waves and specifically for Europe. This was the first time that we found this for, for the event in Toulouse. It's not the same everywhere in the world. So in the US, for example, in many places, we have the opposite thing. 
that the trends are actually in the observations smaller than the models for, again, just for heat extremes. So this, from a scientific point of view, was actually one of the, I think, most important findings that there's obviously something going on with heat waves that the models don't capture, but we don't really know what it is. So it's basically a puzzle for the scientific community that hopefully someone will <laughs> solve soon. Well, that's the beauty of science, isn't it, is that it is imperfect and, and models are really these imperfect simulations of the real world and there will always be gaps in our ability to simulate the behaviour of such complex systems, I think. Because of that uncertainty, they're erring on underestimating. That's right. And and so it just goes to show that, you know, scientists are actually really conservative. They'll only really stick to what they can say in terms of, you know, what the statistical results show. So Freddie and her colleagues for the World Weather Attribution Group have done heaps and heaps and heaps of these studies. And so doing all of these studies, some things have become clear. One thing that we have learned is that heat waves have become orders of magnitude more likely, so hundreds of thousands of times in places, whereas heavy rainfall, droughts and so on have maybe, if, if at all, changed, doubled in likelihood. So and I think that kind of information is really important when you think about resilience building, adaptation, if you have limited resources. So what are the things you have to most urgently prepare for? Also, what these attribution studies show is where climate change is playing a small role or where other factors in terms of structural vulnerability, poverty and so on, are really the drivers of the of the disaster aspect. So on that point, actually, Freddie said that the study that worried her the most was actually one where they, they did it and they found that there wasn't really a discernible impact of climate change on the disaster. Last year, we looked at the drought in Madagascar and found that climate change did not really play a role in that, as far as we can tell. But, of course, this drought was real and had devastating consequences, leading to famine and food insecurity on a, on a really large scale and just... The reason for that is really completely inadequate infrastructure, complete absence of any kind of alternative way to earn money in times of bad harvests. And so large parts of our society are really not adapted to even today's climate. We really don't need to think about a four degree world or to even think about a two degree world. We just see it in a 1.2 degree world so strongly, just how the change that we already have is increasing inequity and inequality. People always think about intergenerational justice, but what we really, really, really have to do is to decrease inequality. That's not on top of the research agenda or on top of the policy agenda or on top of any agenda. And that's what I find really worrying. You're listening to Fear and Wonder. Stay with me for a couple of messages from our sponsors. Joelle's new book, Humanity's Moment, is a different kind of climate writing, a scientist's guide for rekindling hope. It's a deeply informed and deeply felt plea from one of Australia's foremost climate scientists. Joelle's our unflinching guide on a journey that's both personal and global in scale. As you know by now, she contributed to the UN's IPCC Climate Report and she knows the science inside out. She's one of Australia's foremost subject matter experts. But what surprises readers with this book is the warmth, courage and humanity she shows working through the heartbreak of the climate emergency. 
This is not a lament for a lost world. It's an inspiring reminder that human history is an endless tug of war for social justice. Joel reminds us that we're each part of an eternal evolutionary force that can transform our world. Humanity's Moment, published by Black Ink, is available in bookshops now. Fear and Wonder is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council, Australia's own independent, evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. So how do we solve the climate crisis? It requires a major shift in action and attitude from all levels of government, industry, business and community, which is what the Climate Council is campaigning for. If you want to find out more about how you can support urgent climate action, visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. with fear and wonder. In this episode, we're looking at climate modelling and we've been in Toulouse with Freddie Otto as she studied the impact of climate change on a heatwave as it happened. And now we're setting out to take what we've heard about those global climate models and shift them to a more local scale. And Joelle, after that heatwave in June 2019, there was another heatwave in Western Europe and in Toulouse as well in July. Yeah, that's right. And it turns out that that was a really extreme summer in Europe overall. And our third lead author meeting was actually held in Toulouse in August 2019, and it was really hot. There was no air conditioning at the Meteo France building. That's also where Freddie's workshop was held earlier. And the organisers ended up providing us with those old-fashioned sort of handheld fans that you flap to try and cool yourself down. And, And even as an Australian used to really hot summers, I sat there trying to keep up with the discussion as my brain was melting from jet lag and from the heat. And it was one of those surreal moments where the science that we were actually talking about in our rooms was playing out outside our windows. Our next guest was also there in Toulouse because she's an author in Working Group One, just like you, Joelle, and she worked on Chapter 10, linking global and regional climate change. I'm Tanisha Stevenson. I am a professor in the Department of Physics at the University of the West Indies Mona campus. So after hearing from Freddie about how the models were not quite capturing the intensity of the heat waves in Western Europe, I wanted to try to speak to Tanisha about what she does to improve the accuracy of those global models. What Tanisha does is take those models and do what we call regional downscaling. So basically that's just adapting the large-scale model to provide more accurate information about what's going on on that local scale. So in this case, you know, the country of Jamaica. And in this IPCC report, there was a really big emphasis on understanding regional climate change. I grew up in St. Catherine in another parish within Jamaica, not too far from Kingston, but now I reside in Kingston. So I spoke to Tanisha one afternoon in Kingston when she was in her office at the university. What are the students like? Is there a lot of interest in studying climate in in Jamaica? All right, so my students are afraid of physics, but there is a strong (laughs) interest There is a strong interest in climate because for us in small islands, climate is a lived experience. I'm a bit afraid of physics as well, so I can can kind of (laughs) associate. You can relate to my students. Yeah. Yes, yes. So it was also a hot summer in Jamaica in 2019. June was the hottest on record and there were bushfires in June and July as masses of hot, dry air and dust was blowing over the North Atlantic from the Sahara Desert. 
we have been progressively getting warmer and we feel it particularly in the nights where typically you would have anticipated it's an opportunity for us to enjoy a cooler environment. But it, it goes beyond what we're seeing on the records where nighttime temperatures are warming faster than daytime temperatures. We're living that. Cooling becomes difficult because we're just hotter. And so I'm kind of curious to understand so much as I can or get a rough idea mm -hmm. um, with my being afraid of physics, how do you do the modelling, taking it from those, those global scales down into the impacts for the Caribbean? Models are nothing more than equations. We, we can have the sophisticated equations in a computer model where, where your atmosphere is covered and your interactions with oceans are covered. Equations. Or you can have the simplified statistical approach of I've related my rainfall in Kingston, Jamaica to sea surface temperatures over the Atlantic. So this is a really good overview of the two different ways that we get regional climate projections. And the first is really looking at things like the interactions between the ocean and the atmosphere, the things that David talked about earlier. And there are also statistical methods that we can use in terms of tweaking the, the models so that they're constrained by those relationships that we observe in the instrumental climate record. Tanisha, first tell me about that first method that you're talking about, taking those global models and the grid boxes and kind of making the grid boxes smaller. Yeah, exactly. For example, the Hadley Centre in the United Kingdom had developed a global model. And so this model covers Jamaica in four grids, four colours, four broad representations of rainfall over Jamaica, of temperature change over Jamaica. So for a bit of context there, Jamaica is more than 200 kilometres long and over 80 kilometres wide in the, in the largest part. Using equations and relationships that have been built in, we are able to extract finer scale resolution. There are parameterizations, we call them, that you can change in the model so that the model is more representative of our observed climate. Whereas a global climate model may have four grids over Jamaica, your regional climate model could have 25 grids over Jamaica. You're better covering nuances of mountains. Um, you're covering better locations where rivers are coming through. And so there are some microclimates that may be emerging there. You're not quite there, but you're coming closer to representing the differences in topography and its impact on climate at a particular location. So this is what scientists call dynamical downscaling. So taking those global climate models and refining them to be used on those regional scales. But actually what Tanisha does is another method called statistical downscaling. So what she does is use observed climate variables, so things like temperature and rainfall, to constrain those model projections to make sure that they're sort of within the realms of what's possible for that particular region. So you have a temperature record, let's say 1981 to 2000, for example, and you want to understand what are the, the variables impacting on the variations you see year to year in your rainfall. And so you do research to see where sea surface temperatures are good predictors for your rainfall from what you have observed, where, where your winds and your wind speeds or magnitudes are good predictors of the rainfall you observe. And so you create simple equations. It's just a math equation. And for the mathematicians, your y equals mx plus c. Equation for a line, for example. 
So you build the equation on a historical period, and then you take data from your climate models for future data, and you send it into this equation so that you get as your output future rainfall, future temperature for a point location in Jamaica. And so what if climate change is changing those relationships? It, it is very possible climate change is, but the assumptions we make is that the, the relationships we have today will hold true tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The beauty of the approach is it's not one approach you're using. You have different observational data sets that you can work with. You have different models. As you look across the output from your global models, your regional climate models, your statistical models, you start distilling information on where is their consensus? What can we say with confidence? And we try to, from looking at different lines of evidence, try to articulate what we are sure of and what, what are the uncertainties in the projections we have made. I just wanted to check with you about this. She's describing, okay, like they make an assumption about a fixed relationship. Yeah, um, and I wrote that down. So that's what they call stationarity, which is basically saying that it's a linear relationship. So I asked this question, well, what if climate change changes those relationships? Yeah. And then she says, basically, that's true, it could happen, but we use a bunch of different approaches. That's true as well. And then we try to figure out what we know and what we don't know. Obviously, like how the IPCC works is we distill, as Tanisha said, lines of evidence that line up. And so we have confidence in, in those conclusions. But your question is a deeper question, but I think it's, it's, it's unanswerable because we don't know. But you have to move forward with some assumptions about the behaviour of the climate system. And so like I was trying to explain just now. So that is assuming what they call stationarity, that that relationship isn't changing because of global warming, but we kind of know that it is. But how do you mathematically represent that? Mm -hmm. That's a frontier of science. So we've understood how, you know, global climate models work, but how they actually translate into regional climate information is really the cutting edge of the science these days. Thankfully, with the regional models, it decreases the computing power necessary to run the models versus your global models. With regional climate models and the statistical approach now, we can generate this data for the Caribbean within the Caribbean and having that kind of capacity is crucial for us because again, we have a better appreciation of the nuances, the importance of water and so understanding rainfall variability and the impacts on flood risk, heat stress, what it means for agricultural industry, what it means for health and dengue incidents as, as there's an increase in temperature. So because of our appreciation of the nuances of what certain changes of the climate mean for us, having that ability to generate the data ourselves at a scale that is useful to the Caribbean is a great advance in the sense. Wild Gilbert! Well, Gilbert, you're gone! Aha. In 1988, when Tanisha was a kid, Jamaica was hit by Hurricane Gilbert and the eye of the storm passed directly over the country. I, I doubt there's a Jamaican, um, my age group, who would not have remembered a Gilbert. It, it, was, it was a remarkable storm. What do you remember about it from when you were 10? The winds wouldn't stop. <laughs> it, it just seemed, these storms, when they come through, they just seem to linger <laughs> over your island. Ruff. We would like to express our sympathies to those affected by Gilbert. Wild Gilbert. So that's a track called Wild Gilbert 
by Lovendear about the storm. Um, actually, incidentally, he had a follow-up track called Gilbert, One Hell of a Blowjob. <laughs> uh, from an album which was called Why Don't We All Have Sex. So, Lovendear, but it was a huge hit, Wild Gilbert. The rain just would not let up. Um, and so when you go through those experiences of the strong winds and the rainfall that is just continuous, it makes you have to have a greater respect for nature. Uh, and I will dare say the God of nature. Um, but it makes you have a greater respect for your place within the larger part of nature. How does it feel for you to be working on this and to find what you're finding? So the the feeling is mixed. There's a beauty of being on the teams producing this. There is, however, the, the urgency that comes to mind and comes to bear as we see the picture emerging. We're seeing more extreme climate events for small islands, our temperatures are increasing as well, and we're, we're experiencing warm days and warm nights more frequently, so the extremes are increasing. We have sea level rise that we have to contend with, marine heat waves, warming ocean to contend with, we're getting drier. It leaves you with a sense of, as a globe, as small islands, there's a lot more we, we must do the science is coming off the pages, so to speak, and you're seeing it unfold globally. You're seeing the floods, you're seeing the forest fires, you're seeing the droughts and the food scarcity. You're seeing the more extreme events. The records are telling you here's the pattern and you're seeing the pattern unfold globally. I say all of that to say it moves us with a sense of urgency that a lot more needs to be done. And we have the sense to suggest that, yes, we must do more. And we have the technologies emerging that will enable us to do more. Firefighters remain on high alert after battling through the night to contain dozens of blazes burning across southern Queensland and northern New South Wales. So the heat in 2019 didn't end for you in Toulouse, Joanne? ...badly damaged the heritage-listed Binnaburra Lodge. No, it certainly didn't. Um, I returned after this IPCC meeting back to Australia in the start of spring and much of the eastern seaboard was on fire. And even subtropical rainforests in places like Queensland and northern New South Wales that don't usually burn were actually on fire. It was actually that moment where I realised that I, as an IPCC author and as just a, a research scientist, needed to start speaking out more in the public to really help the public join the dots between what we were seeing. So that was my moment where I really started to become a lot more vocal in terms of my, I guess, willingness to engage in the public debate. Huh. Absolutely. It was a black summer turned everything around for me. And so where were you while these bushfires, where were you? I was in northern New South Wales, so that's where I live when I'm not teaching in Canberra. And so we literally had rainforests on fire just 50 kilometres away from where we live. We also had family that evacuated out of their rainforest areas um, and out of their homes. And it was, it was just surreal to be thinking that you can actually have rainforests, these usually really lush, moist, you know, tropical places, tinder dry and literally burning. It was, it was really a moment for me. 
and, and in the end, close to around a quarter of all temperate forests burnt in a single bushfire season. So usually only 2% burns during extreme fire season. So this was just colossal and it actually set a world record for the largest wildfire ever recorded. And so what are kind of some of the consequences of that fire? Yeah, well, so much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals were either killed or displaced from having their sort of habitats incinerated. It was, it was just truly horrendous stuff. I mean, there were ecologists going out in the field and looking at their field study sites and just breaking down in tears and, and just weeping. The fires continued through the spring and into the summer, spreading down the east coast of Australia. And uh, as I've been saying at the start of each episode, my in-law's house burnt down and I actually visited you the day after that happened. And we, we drove down that coast road and just, just threw burnt out bits of bush the whole way down. I thought it was really surreal. I, I actually did visit the New South Wales south coast during a teaching break in 2020 and it was it was really heartbreaking just to see just all the blackened trees and, you know, all these sort of coastal areas that had just been completely incinerated. I'd never seen anything like it, actually. And so Freddie and her colleagues for the World Weather Attribution Group did one of those rapid attribution studies of the Australian bushfires that summer. Yeah, they did. And they found that the Australian bushfires were influenced by climate change, particularly from an increase in extreme temperatures. But they also reported a complex interaction between these natural climate drivers that also primed the system for an extreme fire season. So it was a complex story, but it definitely did have a climate change element in there. Something that really strikes me in this episode with you and Freddie and Tanisha is how you're all experiencing the shifts in climate that you're studying. I mean, it's actually a big thread in the series and it's, it's something that came up again and again with all the people that I interviewed. Yeah, I guess this is one of the things that is really interesting being a climate scientist is that this distinction between what you're actually studying and what is playing out outside your window is is really starting to blur. In this episode, it's been really interesting to think about the work that people like Freddie are doing to try and understand in real time how models are being used to understand these weather and climate extremes and, and how they are changing. With equations. With equations. Sorry, I think I kind of interrupted and then I wasn't listening. I was just thinking about equations. Equations. E- Equations. Equations. So just to whet your appetite for the next episode of Fear and Wonder, we're going to be looking at the water cycle and tracking what happens with the monsoon and climate change in India and South America. And we're going to be speaking to two authors who worked with you on the chapter that you're part of, Joelle. Yeah, that's right. And water is so essential to all life on Earth. And so it's going to be a really interesting look at how its movement around the planet is changing and what that means for climate change impacts in different parts of the world. Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr. Joel Gerges from the Australian National University, with sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Chia, script editing by Nicole Kirby. Thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark, and the conversation's editor, Misha Ketchell. Thanks today to the Extinction Rebellion TV crew who brought hours of streaming from the four-day Big One event in London. It was hardly noticed by the conventional media channels, maybe because they didn't disrupt anything. But please check it out on YouTube for the energy you need to continue your climate action. Thanks also to Joel Gerges and Michael Green 
for introducing us to the climate science, which is so rarely covered, and to the conversation for permission to broadcast. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.